So, Steve, why why were you late again? Sorry, sorry for being late, Jay. Um, I was doing the rubbernecking thing, you know, when you see an event somewhere that you that you you're not supposed to look at, but you do. Oh, like a good event, like a no, happy, wonderful no, thing in no. these dark, unprecedented times, like a nice thing. Unprecedented times? No, neither Unpre- that. No. <laughs> unprecedented times. Um, it I saw was a tweet. Not- it's like, remember precedented times? <laughs> <laughs> Those are the best. Hey, remember charted territory? <laughs> remember certain times? Those are the best. Um, but anyway, you saw a lovely thing. I was walking up to the dog park with my young dog Hercules, and mm. um, there was a fire brigade and a like a fire engine and an ambulance there. Oh no! Because there was a poor man lying down on the ground. He was having to be um, hoisted out. He had broken his leg because and so you 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 were late because you were helping helping this man. Well, I was late partially because I had to wait for them to finish that before Hercules could go in and get his play on. Um, <laughs> okay. But I was I was trying to figure out what happened as well because I was particularly worried that it was a bite. And if there's a bite in the dog park, then that'll probably be bad for all dog owners in terms of repercussions for the dog park, et cetera, et cetera. But what it if wasn't. It's, it's one dog owner biting another dog owner. That would probably also have repercussions. True. I would like to think. Yeah. In these <laughs> unprecedented hope. times. <laughs> But um, it was actually a man got knocked over by his own dog and fell badly and I think broke his leg. Was the dog trying to make an escape, do you think? I think the dog was just bouncing around. I seen it. It was a huge um, German Shepherd. Like it was as big as a big German Shepherd, but half a, half as big as you'd imagine again. It was just a big wolf of a looking thing. Very friendly, very young. Mm. And I think he was just bounding along, gave his owner mm. and boom, and then collapse. See, I, don't, I don't have to worry about this because Hercules... Well, he's not small, is weak mm. as hell. Yeah, he's got that hip dysplasia. He's got hip dysplasia. He is very strong in the front legs, but the back legs ain't got nothing in them. So he's only half power. You're safe for now. Safe for now. So that's why I was late. Sorry about that. God, the world really is falling down at, at a big scale and at a very small dog park level scale. Can't even go to the dog park. I mean, I don't think it was racially motivated. <laughs> we'll see. We'll, we'll, I'm sure it'll be an inquest. There'll probably be an inquest there before uh, more worthy inquests. Unprecedented times indeed. So dog park woes aside, um, that'd be a good biography for you, dog park woes. Um, Aside. That wouldn't be a very nice... You're not. You don't have high hopes for how my life is going to go. No. Well, just looking at white wires. <laughs> Sorry, that's horrible. You don't need this from me <laughs> in these unprecedented lives. But yeah, so we're we're, we're we probably won't talk about news today because we did a whole thing. Because yeah, we did a whole thing, and you know, also gestures broadly at the world. Um, <laughs> what you know, what more are we going to add as to as to white guys? There's a lot of wonderful discourse happening online um, around what's happening right now and we'll link to some of that in the show notes if you do want to hear some pretty interesting um, and thoughtful perspectives from people in the know that's all down below Hey you're a poet and you didn't realise That's the one but what we will maybe ask you to do is usually we around this time say go to whatonpolitics.com forward slash beer to buy us a beer in lieu of doing that if you were thinking about um, buying us a beer just please donate it to a worthy cause again not the beer the money not, that you would yes, have, don't go buy the beer and then pour the beer into an envelope and post that envelope like you always do to us please we appreciate that I, there's nothing I enjoy more than sucking on a soggy envelope that gets pushed through my letterbox mm, right for you. 
But uh, but this week, yeah, we'd like to ask you to take that money and just channel it towards. Um, there's a bunch of of great charities and and nonprofits who are doing good work right now. Um, uh, Campaign Zero is one donated during the week. I would encourage you to go to that or um, Myopia is um, another good charity that looks at uh, uh, redefining kind of the our educational curriculums and, and trying to include more kind of um, ethnic minorities and their stories um, within that so we can kind of fix this from the ground up. Um, and and the, we'll, we'll link to a few more down below uh, or I'm sure, you know, wherever you are in the world, there's there's a, a local equivalent. Um, but yeah, just take, take that money that you, you might have bought a beer with us and just just throw it at those guys. Um, cause well, there is. Now. Um, if not to not to spoil, although you probably guessed because it's in the episode title, and um, we do mm. have someone on from the Muslim Council of Britain, and mm-hmm. after listening to her, you will probably think that they're worthy and that they do have a donate button on their website if you want to drop them a couple of quid. Yes, exactly. say thank you for all the information you're about to receive. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So feel free to do all that. That would be great. And yeah, as Steve's mentioned, we have a. a, a I've said this before and I feel bad every time I say it because it feels really disingenuous but every time I say it I feel like I really mean it but this is my favourite interview (laughs) I know I've said it before but honest to God Zainab was utterly amazing really eloquent really nuanced just so much stuff I didn't I wasn't aware of I feel so much more enlightened after talking to her so it's a great interview and and well worth donating to but before we do that uh, we, we have an ad we have an ad we have an ad. You and I, Steve, have been entrusted with an ad. Fools. Fools. But, you know, so, okay, if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably listening because you like having things, you like explainers. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's fair to say, right? Yeah. But now, can you imagine, can you imagine the explainer type show, Steve, that's actually good and competently made? I've been trying to for 104 episodes, but <laughs> yeah. I've yet to fathom it. But I bet you the intelligent people that make, what do you want to know? A new explainer type show from the Trinity Research Office. And I feel like they know what they're doing over there at Trinity. I mean, I know been- you and I are a couple of DCU heads. Yeah. DCU! DCU! Go Badgers! <laughs> Did we have a team? <laughs> yeah. That's like- what they always do. In- that's what they do in America. They always say go something. Go animals. Go. What would be North Dublin? What would they have? Foxes. Foxes. Go badgers. urban foxes. Go, I think no, go, go urban foxes. Get out of here. Go, get out of my bins. Uh, yeah, okay. So they're from TCD, Trinity mm-hmm. City Dublin. Trinity City Dublin. <laughs> Trinity College Dublin. We're doing a good job. <laughs> Their first episode better be about how you explain the acronym of TCD. <laughs> Not that difficult. <laughs> Not that difficult. It's a very short episode. But no, if yeah, if you do like the idea of, 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 a, of a really succinct, simple um, explainer show, which you probably do because you're listening to this, um, feel free to check out those guys. There will be a link in the show notes for where you can go check that out. The first few episodes are going to be talking about from everything like how sign language works, uh, where their viruses are alive. That sounds important these Yeah, I think days. that's pretty essential reading Also, right now. 5G networks, what they really are. My well, I know what that Donegal. is. It's a coronavirus farm. Thank you yeah, very well, much. It's either turning people gay or making coronavirus farms, but we'll have to listen to this podcast to be absolutely yeah. sure. You know, one I'm thing it's definitely not doing is providing high-speed internet for people wirelessly. Well, obviously, at not. least we can agree on that. Well, I'll be shocked to find out if that's what it is whenever that episode comes up. Mm. Um, yeah. The best thing about this show, as well, is that they're not a bunch of mm. lofty ivory tower folks like us ignoring their listeners. No. They actually listen to suggested topics for future episodes so you can get the answers to the things that you want to know. Sometimes I think up here on my high horse, the standing <laughs> on top of my pedestal, which is in my high tower, that I'm maybe a little bit too above it all. No. But then I think no. <laughs> Why, what, why, would, why would one even question oneself? Exactly. 
So yeah, check out What Do You Want to Know, uh, link in the description. So Steve, we have a list of topics that we... uh, I'd like to say that we're, you know, waiting to treat them with the weight and nuance they deserve, which is true, but we're also just kind of scared. We're scared. And we get distracted by Game of Thrones and Eurovision. Yeah. So I know we're 104 or 100. This is our 105th episode. This is 105. 105. 105. It took us 105 episodes. Go Badgers. It took us 105 episodes to get to What Am Islam? Which sounds reprehensible. That took us this long to talk about something so big and so important. But if it meant waiting to get our guests, Zainab Gulamali, then I think the wait was worth it. Yeah, she was absolutely fantastic. She will be absolutely fantastic. And she was absolutely fantastic. Past, present and future tense. She's just across the spectrum of time. She's amazing. Uh, do you want to tell a little bit about Zainab before we get into the interview? Yep, she's the public affairs manager, I believe, of the Muslim Council of Britain, um, an organisation mm-hmm. that I will let her explain what they're all about. But yeah. needless to say, they're doing absolutely fantastic work in a pretty difficult situation. Yeah. And she also has a cat, but spoilers, we didn't get to see the cat. So if that's why you're here. There's always a downside. There's always, always Would you believe there's always a downside these days? But yeah, great, great interview. Um, and let's get to it. What's your what's your lockdown setup currently? Oh, I am in my room where I spend my entire life now. Um, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, I uh, back home with my parents, which is uh, fun um, and mm. less than ideal. <laughs> interesting, definitely interesting. Have you regressed at all? I, I it's strange. Like, just I, I, some part of me feels like I'm like fourteen, especially like with my desk yeah. in my room that I haven't had for about twelve years. Um, yeah. But it's just like this just really weird dynamic. And I'm very grateful that I'm working because mm. it gives me something to do. But yeah, I I've, I've, I feel I kind of feel about 14, but also about 50 because I'm not leaving the house. It's strange, isn't it? Yeah, it's a weird, it's a weird limbo. I feel like I'm starting to get more like a teenage angst. I'm not even like back home with my parents, but I have this urge to just like storm upstairs to my bedroom Slam and lay Lincoln Park. Yes. Just say, you don't understand me. But I've, I've been fighting it back. But who's to say? It's bringing it out the worst in everyone, no. isn't it? <laughs> yes. How has your girlfriend Kate been reacting to you doing this to her, Richie? <laughs> yeah, she has her own angry music that she likes to play. A lot of Avril Lavigne's uh, complicated. Uh, you can't get wrong. You can't, you can't really. get wrong. Music like a true fourteen-year-old. Yeah, exactly. I agree. Good we peaked at Avril Lavigne. <laughs> Since then, you know, it's all downhill. One uh, really exciting thing out of this lockdown has been uh, my cat has learned how to open the door to my bedroom. <gasps> Like the, the the Velociraptors in Jurassic Park. Like she, I mean, I'd be like, I was hosting a webinar earlier and I see the door open. I was like, oh shit, oh shit. There's like 400 people on this webinar and my cat comes strolling in and jumps on my chair. Ah. And I am, yeah, I'm doing this webinar live streaming on Facebook and there are about 400 people watching. That's adorable. So, it probably got you loads of likes and hearts. Yeah, that's it. You got to work and it if into I your thing. I don't go viral, you know. <laughs> we did a Skype interview with someone before and they had a turtle and it nearly completely <gasps> like ruined the interview because I was I was so distracted by this adorable little turtle. It was like Aww. using its little claws on the hardwood floor, but it would just sound like it sounded oh like sounded like a like a, a buffalo tap dancing or something. Which is very That's slowly. So cute. And even our last interview over Zoom, there was the the guy was adjusting his webcam and it panned over to the right and there was a dog on the bed. And I immediately went, oh, doggy! <laughs> Completely breaking any semblance of professionalism I, I built up. Well, 
Well, I mean, I um, I had a we had like our office team meeting a few weeks ago, like quite soon into the lockdown, mm. and um, like our, our bathroom is just next to my room, and my my parents weren't at work then, so they were at home and stuff. And um, my, I was unmuted because I was talking, whatever, whatever, and suddenly you just hear my dad shout, "We've run out of loo roll!" <laughs> <laughs> And I'm like, I'm still fairly new to the organization and I'm yeah. like trying to show that, you know, I am somewhat professional. And mm. then you just hear my dad shouting about not having any loo roll. So hey, that's, that sounds like an emergency <laughs> that needs to be dealt with. This is true. This is why the cat can open the door. Next stage, she can, you know, walk the loo roll in. <laughs> we need to train her. Exactly. Um, so do you want to start by just telling us a little bit about the Muslim Council of Britain, what they do, mm-hmm. and even just like what's a normal day for you? Yes. So the Muslim Council of Britain is the UK's largest umbrella body representing uh, Muslim institutions. So mosques, schools, charities, professional networks. Um, And we basically um, were set up for two purposes. One, to advocate um, on behalf of and lobby for Muslims um, and on issues um, affecting Muslims. And the other um, thing that we do is capacity build within Muslim communities. And so um, the capacity building is probably the most interesting work that we do. Um, So there's a lot of projects that we do around uh, improving the governance structures in mosques, making sure they're more accessible and inclusive, making sure you have women on governance boards. Um, We do a lot of work around black and British Muslims who are often marginalised or not really seen. And so uh, amplifying their voices and making sure that they are represented as part of the Muslim community, which they obviously are. Um, And we do a lot of work on on um, like leadership development for women and uh, young people. So um, we hold this conference every year called Our Mosques, Our Future, which um, brings together a lot of young people who are interested in uh, making their mosques or their community centres a place for them and also bringing together the people who actually run the mosques at the moment to be able to, for them to be able to understand what, pe- what younger generations want from their mosques and to find ways in which to make mosques um, work for the younger people where they traditionally don't. Then uh, on the advocacy and, and lobbying part, that's that's my job mainly. Um, so a lot of it is holding government to account on um, issues pertaining to Muslims or um, working with political parties to raise issues that Muslims care about or raise policies that would benefit Muslims. And uh, following the general election that we just had uh, and the kind of government that we have and now the pandemic and the uh, disproportionate rate of deaths within BAME communities, that advocacy and that lobbying work has been incredibly uh, busy and I guess more important than ever. That sounds like a very busy day on an average day. Yeah. <laughs> it does, it does. And we're like a it was like a national body. Um, so we represent over 500 Muslim organisations and we do all of this really cool work. Um, but we are actually a really small organisation. Mm. Um, there are less than 10 permanent members of staff. Um, we have like a, an exec body that are um, kind of like our government, I guess. Um, and they are all volunteers. So our secretary general is our secretary general, but that's his, that's what he moonlights doing his day Mm. job. uh, He works for Transport for London. You know, all of our exec team have their own full-time jobs and every, all the work that they do for the MCB is all in a voluntary capacity, which is really incredible to see people dedicate Mm. so much time and effort to, um, to the organization and to causes that they really believe in. And how how do you guys measure success? Because it's like such a big aspirational, great thing. But how do you guys like go about quantifying your impact? We're kind of set up in a way just to firefight, mm-hmm. mainly because we 
no, we're a not-for-profit, we're not a charity, we don't take any government money. You know, personally, for me, a lot of my work is on Islamophobia. And so a measure of success would be achieving things like an inquiry into Islamophobia in the government. Is that, That's really kind of blue sky thinking. And, you know, it's it's very easy to say it would be great if we solved racism and, uh, you know, tackled all of the... Um, different types of structural inequality that make living in Britain for Muslims pretty difficult. Um, and I, I'm not sure it's entirely achievable just yet, but, you know, we try. What more can you do? <laughs> yeah, exactly. For people that may not, um, like certainly in Ireland, there are, there, are quite, there are quite a few Muslims, especially around the urban areas. But maybe if you live in the rural areas, you may not actually know personally that many Muslims. So you may not actually know how their cultural practices and and religious practices are different. So specifically, we wanted to line this episode up to come in with the end of Ramadan and Eid, but we've delayed it a couple of weeks since. So um, it's not entirely relevant, but still, uh, could you just give us a a quick explanation as to what Ramadan is and then what happens on Eid, the celebration at the end of it? Yes. Yeah, so Ramadan is the holiest year of the uh, Islamic calendar. Um, it's the month where Muslims believe the Quran was revealed, which is why it's so holy and so important. Um, and we fast from um, dawn to sunset. And so some this year, that was like 17 hours or 18 yeah. hours from about half past two in the morning to about 8.30 or nine o'clock. Um, so that's no drinking, no eating, no smoking. Um, absolutely nothing in daylight hours. Um, and that lasts for 30 days. And a usual Ramadan is kind of centered around the mosque. So people go to the mosque, tend to go to the mosque every day um, for prayers in the evening. Um, usually mosques will um, hold the iftar meal, the meal at the end of fasting um, for their community. So everyone kind of sits together and eats together. It's a really social month as well. Um, you know, Outside of the mosque, you have lots of Muslim organizations putting on some really cool events. Uh, you have, there's like this big expectation to uh, go around to people's houses or go out for dinner and stuff. And so it's the, the busiest time of year that you do whilst you're also not eating and barely sleeping. Yeah. Um, so it's pretty mm. intense. It's pretty yeah. intense, but it's it's really fun and it's really interesting. And, you know, the whole not eating and not drinking thing sounds incredibly intimidating and terrifying but it's really interesting to see what you're capable of Mm. and that you know i I get i personally get this massive sense of accomplishment after like day two or day three and then after day 30 when i realized that i've done this thing which objectively sounds really really tough and i've done it for 30 days whilst you know working and still you know living my life and that's always really empowering i find a huge a huge accomplishment yeah exactly and you know and it's, it's really nice to talk about as well and I, it gives me a real sense of pride telling people oh this is what i've just done and they're always so shocked you know not even water is like a classic muslim joke because that's what everyone always <laughs> says when you say you're fasting um but it's really cool and it's also um charity is a really big thing in ramadan and so muslims are encouraged to give to charity and there are some i can't remember off the top of my head but there are some incredible statistics about the levels of giving in ramadan by muslims to british charities and also this year because of lockdown um all of our mosques are closed and so no one was able to go to the mosque and social distancing meant that no one was able to go around to people's houses and it was like uh, ramadan being the most sociable time of year but being done in isolation which was incredibly um nerve-wracking beforehand but it was really interesting to see how people adapted and how people 
did it. So uh, the concept of a, of a virtual iftar was um, born. And so people were um, hosting like webinars um, ahead of breaking the fast. And then everyone was breaking their fast at the end of the webinar um, together. Lots of families were having like Zoom calls to eat together. Um, mosques and imams took their services online. And so they were giving sermons via Instagram live and, um, you know, doing recitations of the Quran via, via YouTube. And so it was really incredible to see so much hard work go into making the most bizarre Ramadan, like marginally normal, mm-hmm. um, which was really, really nice and really interesting. And I think um, particularly on the charity side, where charity is such a big part of Ramadan, it was really cool to see that people giving back to their local communities, particularly because of the pandemic. So we saw loads of mosques set up food banks um, or use their spaces that they now have because they were closed as temporary mortuaries. We have one mosque that set up end of life facilities um, to take the burden off their local hospital. Um, and so it was really, really incredible to see how that that kind of concept and that drive to give back to your local communities was adapted um, to the pandemic. And I think like, that's the real true aspect and true essence of Ramadan, really, to give back to your local community, to, to act in service to others. And because of the pandemic, we were able to do that and see, see like tangible impacts and tangible benefits. I hadn't heard about that, about the mosques being adapted. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then what about Eid? What is that just a big huli at the end of Ramadan? <laughs> it, it is. It's the it's the festival at the end of Ramadan, the Muslim Christmas, if you will. Um, and again, that is a massive celebration. Um, traditionally, in Arab culture, the celebration lasts for three days, um, which is you know a brilliant news up really. <laughs> but um, <laughs> lots of people uh, start the day of Eid by going to the mosque for uh, congregational prayers which we couldn't do this year. Yeah. Um, so people were doing it within their homes instead, which was really lovely. So um, I have never prayed the Eid prayer in my life. I don't think my parents have either. And my dad never goes to the mosque for it um, because my parents are self-employed, so they work all the time. Mm. Um, and so this year, for the first time ever, we were all at home and had no excuse not to pray <laughs> it. Um, so I prayed Eid prayer with my parents for the first time ever. And it was really nice. And lots of people were saying the same thing. Um, one brilliant, uh, thing that I learned about the Eid prayer is that traditionally, um, the person giving the sermon, so the, the prayer is made up of a, like a prayer in the traditional Muslim sense, but also it's followed by a sermon. Traditionally, when you're giving the sermon, you are meant to hold a staff and, uh, people in their homes were having to improvise. And so I have seen, oh my God. uh, yeah, yeah, you can see where this is going. Yeah. I have seen Muslim dads holding a lightsaber oh in the God. morning of Eid, <laughs> delivering this sermon to their children. And I just, you know, that for me is, it's what it's all about, you know? It's just, this it's is brilliant. the most wholesome, lovely stuff. It's great. It's so, I just thought it was amazing. And I saw so many families like create the most bizarre TikTok videos <laughs> for Eid because everyone is bored yeah and traditionally Eid is like the busiest day you go around to visit all your family you know you have Eid prayers in the morning you have big lunches all the rest of it and this year no one could really do any of that so people were making TikTok videos I'm hoping that that when life goes back to normal some of these practices remain so when you go to a mosque on Eid lightsabers the lights go down lightsabers come out absolutely why not that's amazing I think it's just 
Oh, I just, oh, I don't know. Yeah. The lightsaber was, that really did it for me. <laughs> I thought you were going to say like, a sweet brush is... or something. That's way better. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. So we talked a bit about Muslim life during this weird coronavirus time. But expanding a little bit, again, maybe for some of our listeners who don't have any Muslim people in their life, can you talk a little bit, I know this is quite vague and quite general, but a little bit about maybe Muslim life in the UK in general? Yes. Um, so being British and Muslim, you are kind of just seen as being a British Muslim. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, And there's, there's kind of a perception that we're all the same but British Muslim communities are incredibly diverse incredibly different um, we're predominantly South Asian but 12% of British Muslims are white and about 7% of British Muslims are black and so whilst people traditionally think of British Muslims as being Pakistani or Bangladeshi it's not the case um, we are a really young community so I think it's about over fifty percent. I think it's about fifty four percent of British Muslims are under the age of nineteen. Wow. Um, yeah, which is really interesting, um, and particularly interesting if you think if you look at the statistics around coronavirus and coronavirus mortality rates, and the incredible numbers of older BAME communities dying of coronavirus, considering that BAME communities in the UK and Muslim communities in the UK are generally younger, which just shows how excessive they are. Um, but British Muslims are also overwhelmingly poor. So one stat that always kind of jumps out at me is that 46% of British Muslims live in the 10 most deprived local authorities in England. Um, And most Muslims live in urban areas um, rather than rural areas, particularly in London and the West Midlands and Manchester. Um, So it's, it's really difficult to kind of talk about what life is like as a British Muslim. And it's particularly difficult for me as the spokesperson for the Muslim Council of Britain because I'm always kind of called upon to speak about what it's like to be a British Muslim. And I don't, I don't know, I can speak about what it's like to be me, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of interesting somewhat, but it's really difficult because you, you have like this overwhelming sense of responsibility that you have to fairly and accurately represent everyone. And I mean, there are three million people um it's like i don't know it's it's kind of like saying you know what what's it like being a mancunian or something mm. like and i think i think people often that because of this perception that muslims are like a homogenous community people often disregard like the really rich intersectionality like i was saying you know earlier people don't often think about muslims as being black um but a huge percentage of Muslims are black, and you know that's a really important part of the Muslim community. And so I think I think it's really difficult to to try and describe in any sort of succinct way mm. what British Muslims are like or what life is like in Britain for Muslims because it's just so different. But what I think is really interesting is that um, people often try and people who aren't Muslim often try and define British Muslims um, and try and tell you tell people what British Muslims think and there's sort of this perception that British Muslims can't speak for themselves or that they what they do say about themselves isn't something that you should believe necessarily that they're not telling the truth and you know on this something that I have always found really striking um, a few years ago uh, Trevor Phillips who is the former head of the um, Equality and Human Rights Commission he had a documentary that was called What Do Muslims in Britain Really Think? And it's just, 
Okay, so are you a non-Muslim trying to tell the world what British Muslims really think because you don't think what we tell you we think is the truth? Yeah. What was I've, he? What was his big scoop is, in the end? Like this what? is the former head of the Equalities Watchdog that is saying British Muslims are lying when they tell you what they think. And here I am, a non-British Muslim who can actually tell you what you think. And this is like not just localised to him, but it's so common, you know. Um, couple, last year, actually, um, a definition of Islamophobia was developed by um, the all-party parliamentary group on British Muslims. It went through like really extensive consultation with academics, with Muslim communities, um, with politicians. This they like this definition was decided upon, it was agreed upon, it was endorsed by a huge section of civil society and staff. And uh, the UK government, the Theresa May's Conservative government at the time, rejected it and said that it believed that it, the Conservative government, could do a better job at defining the racism that affects people like me than people like me but did, wow. they, did they follow that up with a definition or did they just ignore it um so they said last this was last july i believe last july they said well we'll define it um and we are still waiting for the terms of reference for that consultation mm. to be published so we don't like oh, what you goodness. said but we're not going to give you any alternative yes. or actually listen to no. what you or ask you to like you know engage with us on it it's just no exactly like but it. it's this concept that you know oh Yes, all of you British Muslims in think that this is how you should define this racism. That's, you know, that's uh, that that you're impacted by. But we don't actually. We as the Conservative Party, in all of our diversity and wisdom, <laughs> don't believe you. Is this just a? It's, why do you think the root cause of this? Do you think it's just bread and butter, like white privilege, or like what? What do you think the reason for this is? I think it's just. Like Islamophobia very much feels like the the last acceptable form of racism um, in the UK, and because it's just so normalised, you know, it's so mainstream and it's so kind of it's yeah, it's still acceptable. I think it was uh, Baroness Warsi, the the former chair of the Conservative Party, the first ever and the only Muslim um, chair of the Conservative Party who said it is past the dinner table test. You know, mm. it's, it's totally OK to speak about British Muslims like that. And I think, you know, there's been some really interesting polling over the last few years um, on perceptions in Britain of of Muslims, um, which is and, you know, you read through this stuff and it's so. I don't know, it, it blows your mind that people think this Um so it was the there's an anti-fascist group in the UK called Hope Not Hate, and um, they did some polling in 2018, I believe, and they found that 35 percent of people thought Islam was generally a threat to the British way of life, and they found that almost um, nearly a third of people thought there were no-go zones in Britain where Sharia law was like in place, and that non-Muslims could enter. And I mean, I, I'm from London. I'm from the east end of london i'm from these no-go zones suppose it yeah exactly suppose the no-go zones and i mean i just the, the the thought of people thinking that muslims are taking over anywhere mm. just blows my mind and you know it, i assume very much a lot of it comes from people who don't actually live in these areas or who have never really been to these areas or who live in really isolated and not very diverse communities who 
you know, they hear something on the news. And, you know, if you were just to, if, you, if all of your knowledge and understanding of Islam and British Muslims was to come from the news, I, I don't entirely blame you for that skewing mm. your your viewpoint, you know. Um, there's a there was a comedian, I can't remember who it was, and he once made a joke about how, you know, it's really great to see so much Muslim representation on TV. You know, we're the hit stars in this TV show called The News. And it's, <laughs> it's so funny, but so sad. Mm. I mean, I saw just, just like I was doing a bit of research and I saw you on the news criticising uh, uh, Michael O'Leary for his comments talk, yes. like about profiling. Yes. So do you want to talk about like, that's just a perfect example, I think, of what, <laughs> what you're talking about, like the ridiculousness of it. So uh, like, I mean, I mean, there's two, there's two parts of that, you know, um, I think, so I'm the spokesperson of the Muslim Council of Britain, um, Part, I started at the Muslim Council of Britain about nine months ago um, and a big um, driver of mine was to change the perception of British Muslims that you see in the media and on TV and all the rest of it. You know, I, as a 26-year-old Muslim woman, was really fed up of just seeing old brown men represent Muslims on TV. You know, that's not really what we're like. Um, and I just, I you know, we can do better. We really, really can. So, uh, you know, I have been trying my best to not put old brown men on TV. Um, and a, a lot of Or on a podcast, yes. <laughs> um, and unfortunately, a lot of that means that I have to do it instead. Um, so, <laughs> yay. Um, but I, I've done a lot of interviews. I've done a lot of media stuff in the last nine months. Um, and I have only ever been asked to speak about Islamophobia, uh, about terrorist attacks and about British Muslimness. The, con- the concept that all we can really speak about is this very, very narrow part of our identity is just so sad. And I um, I did a conference at a uh, big uh, broadcaster recently um, with a bunch of producers and stuff. And I was talking to them about this and talking to them about how it feels like people only see Muslims as Muslims. They don't think about them in any other way. And like, you know, we're, we're exactly, we're only really... We're only asked to speak about our Muslimness and we and there's this perception that we're not affected by anything else. So like, you know, you never see um a a British Muslim who's interviewed about, I don't know, like the housing crisis, for example, even though um it's about thirty percent of British Muslims live in social housing. Or, you know, you don't have Muslim doctors on TV speaking of generally about the pandemic unless they're speaking about the impact of the pandemic on Muslim communities, even though 10% of all NHS doctors in England are Muslim. And that there's just this real disconnect, you know, particularly in the media, you just have people, unless there's a story about Muslims, then they call on Muslims. Whereas, you know, with other people, with other communities, you know, you don't think about only one aspect of someone's identity totally defining them that's something that's really problematic and it kind of feeds into this narrative that Muslims are only, the only thing about Muslims is their Muslimness. And it just cuts away at so much of like the rich intersectionality. Um, and like, and it also just ignores all the other ways in which like society and public policy and day-to-day life impacts Muslims. And that's really reductive. And it also just ignores some of the huge issues and, you know, the huge impacts of public policy on Muslim communities. On the Michael O'Leary thing, 
um, again, just just so shocking. I hope you don't blame yeah, us for, for that. Yeah, for, for, <laughs> well, for, those yeah. Who are, for those who didn't hear the story, he was quoted as saying, um, you can't say stuff because it's racism, but it will generally be males of a Muslim persuasion when he's referring to like, like uh, profiling terrorism. Yes. Uh, 30 years ago, it was the Irish. If that is where the threat is coming from, deal with the threat. So I don't know whether he threw the Irish thing at the end, at the end as a way of like like softening yeah, it no, in his exactly. mind. It's pretty common. Like, oh, we, it's pretty common in we, Ireland for people to caveat things by going, "Oh, the Irish used to be treated badly, so therefore yeah, we're going to exactly. say a bad yeah. thing about this person now." Yeah, exactly. Like, exactly, exactly. And you know, that's I feel like that's how so much, well, racism, abuse, uh, disregard for communities is kind of normalized like oh yeah we went through it we went we had the whole no blacks no dogs no irish signs we mm. and we survived so therefore you can too it's very much like this concept of uh migrants who um migrants who are against open immigration policies mm. um and it's, it's this whole you know coming in and pulling the ladder up as you come in to not let other people in and it's just it's it's incredible that someone of his profile can give such a candid interview and not really be called out on it it you know i mean what does that even mean are you just stopping all brown men and that's not doesn't really seem like a very efficient yeah what's your policy even based on this apart from just being a brick exactly exactly but you know that he said that and that was the front page of a newspaper on a saturday and I had to do a lot of work explaining why saying that was wrong. But imagine if we didn't have to call out racists every time they were racist and how much time we would save and how much energy we would save arguing against racism, how much cool work we could do if we weren't bogged down by racism. Mm. You totally see what you mean by putting out fires. Um, <laughs> yeah. And that then converging with you're not being able to speak about the rich tapestry of like intersectional issues. and Exactly. When you're exactly. dealing with shitheads like Michael O'Leary coming out with stuff like this, you wake up with a bunch of messages from people going, hey, sorry. <laughs> exactly. It was a Saturday. I was on my way to Cardiff. I, from London, I got to Bath. So I'd been on the train for an hour and a half and I had to get off the train, cross the platform, come all the way back to London and go oh. into studio. I mean... Like, not just was that, I know this is a rant, it's not just that was that was my Saturday, but mm. like, that was a lot of work that I had to then go into writing statements and doing interviews and explaining why saying all brown men are potentially terrorists is wrong. And that is such a waste of time. It's, it's, it's amazing that we're in 2020 and this is still what we're doing. Sorry to keep the topic on these shitty things like racism and stuff, but the next question is about immigration. Um, It seems that in the UK, particularly, you guys can't get enough of talking about immigration. Um, It seems to be at the forefront of nearly all political debates and has been for a very long time. And it seems that it got really wrapped up into Brexit, where people were using Brexit and anti-immigration. Well, sorry, we're using essentially brown people and Muslims as a reason to say we have to shut down immigration and have Brexit, even though... The countries that will be affected by immigration and Brexit have nothing to do with the people that you're trying to attack. I mean, is which is just brilliant <laughs> in itself, right? Like, you know, let's let's stop white people coming in because we hate Muslims. Even though, if you left the EU, like theoretically, if you left the EU and there was no freedom of movement with the EU, and you, that you would therefore have a more open immigration policy, or there would be higher numbers of people from other countries non-white countries who are able to come in so you'd probably actually get more muslim immigration 
But yeah, let's, it's, it's all the EU's fault. The EU that is also famously pandering to the right and has people like Viktor Orban mm. uh, in power. Yeah. So do you think that the Mind idea blow. of immigration and Islam are too overly tied together in the media and then the political discourse? Yeah. And I think if it was like immigration policy in the UK targets different communities at different times, you know, like we said, we had, there was a lot of um, racism against Irish communities. And there was a lot of talk about immigration being linked to, to Irish communities. And there was the same thing about black communities, but we've been stuck on Muslims for a while now. Mm. Um, and it kind of feels like this, this conversation about Muslim immigration, whatever that means, has also been in parallel to uh, like Eastern European immigration. But I, you know, even post Brexit, I still think we'll be stuck on Muslim immigration for a really long time. And, you know, I think a big problem is that, you know, this, this, these stats that we were talking about earlier, the fact that people think that Muslims are kind of taking over that, you know, um, there was, there was one poll that I read that said that, um, you know, people would, I think it was about 30% of people would support a campaign to stop a local mosque being developed, even if like that campaign became violent against against Muslims. And it's just like this whole, this whole concept that, that Muslims are these alien creatures who are taking over. And I guess that's, that's where that fear comes from. And a lot of that is just, I believe, out of sheer ignorance but again it's so shocking that we're in 2020 we have things like the internet you know people don't live in like isolated communities like they once used to we have a muslim mayor of london we have uh you know we had a home secretary and a chancellor who was of muslim heritage and yet people think that muslims are these bizarre creatures who are coming to take over and and all the rest of it and you know a lot of that is just purported further by anti-muslim sentiments in government in you know by commentators who are given platforms on you know places like the bbc and we have people like nigel farage and and ukip who come out with policies about banning burqas and things like that and i I don't know if you remember in 2017 they had that was like their big flagship policy that we're going to ban face coverings because, you know, all Muslims are evil and all the rest of it. And then they had to follow up that policy with, oh, but not uh, face coverings for uh, for beekeepers. <laughs> what? <laughs> I wish I was joking. I wish I was joking. And do you know what? There's probably a huge correlation between UKIP supporters and beekeepers. Sorry to <laughs> right? sorry to put a, a knife into the beekeepers. Well, that's incredible. I didn't know that. But oh it's like, it's not even sensible debate anymore. That's, that's what I'm trying to get across. It is just so petulant. It's so... Yeah. Uh, stupid it's just it's just so like it's it's just not intelligent yeah. I'm, I'm just imagining Nigel Farage like at breakfast like pouring manuka honey on his toast taking oh, a bite and his eyes going wide going oh no what have <laughs> no, I done exactly exactly wasn't Christ. wasn't there sorry wasn't there some um confusion in France at the moment about the obligation yes. to wear face coverings yes. but the ban exactly. on wearing face coverings exactly in France you're not as a Muslim woman you're not allowed to cover your face but now Legally, you have to cover your face because of the coronavirus. But if you're a Muslim woman who wears a face covering, you have to remove your face covering and put on a mask, which is surely exactly the same. Oh, but, my God. But, you know, that, that's, yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I'm trying to get at. This whole conversation about Muslims is just, I feel like it, it just gets even, it gets more and more stupid and more mm. laughable, but it is taken seriously. And that's what's so depressing yeah 
yeah. I guess. And all, all this can only be compounded by having a PM who, you know, famous, infamously described Muslim women as looking like post boxes. Well, like we're all post boxes now, <laughs> Boris. <laughs> <laughs> it's and the he's equalizer. the biggest one of them all as well <laughs> I mean Islamophobia in the Conservative Party uh, is just it's, it's mind boggling how, so how do you think a, a Muslim politician can reconcile being in the Conservative Party is that something that uh, I should ask them I, I, <laughs> I, can't, I can't answer that as being part of a non-partisan organisation I have very strong views, and I'm, you know, I, I, I won't go into that. But the Conservative Party and its links with Islamophobia and its history with Islamophobia is so unbelievably rich, um, but it's just still so acceptable. So um, I've done a lot of work on Islamophobia in the Conservative Party. I recently published a dossier of over 300 members of the Conservative Party, uh, showing evidence of over 300 members of the Conservative Party engaging in Islamophobia, from the Prime Minister to a number of cabinet ministers and MPs to councillors to um, just ordinary members of the party. And a lot of these cases haven't been investigated by the Conservative Party. During the election, the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, very famously said a number of times that the Conservative Party have a zero-tolerance policy on Islamophobia, despite him saying the things that he said and he was investigated but he was cleared off any wrongdoing despite saying what he said you know we had uh in 2016 zach goldsmith famously ran a hideously islamophobic um mayoral campaign for london against sadiq khan like uh there was a front page of the daily mail i believe which had uh a quote from Zach Goldsmith saying, Sadiq Khan is not fit to be uh, mayor of London with a picture of a blown up bus from a London terror attack in 2005, I think. Uh, neither of which are linked at all. Um, but just, you know, people get away with that. And in writing this dossier, I had to read through things that Conservative members have written either on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. And some of the things that people are people say are so shocking and disgusting and horrible um, and I'll read you some of them now because I think it's really important to actually understand Please. the level of hatred and vitriol that is directed at Muslims but I think what is really important is that these are all public these are all in the public space they are all written on t Twitter or Facebook and they weren't even like you know throwaway accounts I was able to find the person's name, identify that they were a Conservative Party member. Lots of them were councillors or um, chairs of Conservative associations or leaders of councils or, you know, MPs themselves. Um, and that they're given the licence to do this stuff, not only because, you know, they know that they can say this stuff or do this stuff and not be investigated by the Conservative Party. Sometimes they are investigated, then they're let back in. But if you have a Prime Minister that says this stuff, if you have members of the Cabinet that... that say this stuff and and retweet Tommy Robinson and, you know, invite ugh, vile Islamophobes into Parliament and host them at events, you know, what, what, and, and they get away with it, you know, clearly it means that everyone else can do it too and it's totally fine. Um, some of the, some of the most shocking things that I read that Conservative members um, said were, there was one former councillor who called for the unconditional surrender by Muslims. 
um, there was one chairman of a conservative party association that called for Muslims to be banned. Um, there was one party member that called for Muslims to be thrown from bridges. Fuck. Another party member called for Muslims to be forcibly sterilised. Um, <clears throat> a councillor and the leader of the Conservatives on a prominent London council um, called for the murder of Muslim migrants, uh, claiming that Europe had been invaded. Uh, someone else, after the terror attack in Manchester, um, called for lynch mobs and RAF strikes in South Manchester um, and said this was justified retribution. Um, someone else um, commented on a post that claimed that Muslims are taking over um, and they, they wrote, the end comes next. I mean, Christ. if this... It, 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 it's it's it goes so much far, further beyond like normal like they're using the language or the narrative of a war but it's almost to a heightened degree like you were saying about an alien invasion type thing where you're dehumanizing like these exactly. aren't people we can implement eugenics and, exactly exactly you know, like i mean just... who has proactively called for lynch mobs how 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 does someone type that and think that that's an okay thing to say and you know Yes, all of these things are disgusting and shocking. But I think what is more disgusting and more shocking is that we put all this evidence in um, to the Equality and Human Rights Commission who have the ability to investigate political parties over racism. They're currently investigating Labour over anti-Semitism. We did that last year uh, and they haven't actually responded to our request. So I did it again this year. I gave them double the amount of evidence, 300 uh, over 300 individuals, including special advisors to the prime minister. Um, and they, again, have just said that they are not investigating the Conservative Party. So it very much feels like everyone or all of the establishment is kind of pitted against you. And no one really actually cares that people are calling for people who look like me to be sterilised or thrown from a bridge. And there is something really weird for me personally, you know, looking like I do, I wear a hijab. I'm very, very, very identifiably Muslim. I am also on the news a lot and talking about Muslim issues and British Muslimness and all the rest of it. To have to write this report and say, people think I should be sterilized. People think that, you know, there should be an RAF strike against people that look like me. Writing that in itself is unbelievable in 2020. And then reporting that to the equalities watchdog and have them say, yeah, actually, you're right. We don't think that this deserves an investigation is even more, I don't know, it's surreal. It really is surreal that this is just so acceptable. And it just feels like at every level of you know, government or um, or like public body that it's, that it's kind of okay and it's deemed to be okay. And I think that's, that, that's what I can't really come to terms with. I don't think. I was going to interject earlier to ask um, when you were saying that Islamophobia is the last accepted form of bigotry and xenophobia, but to ask you what you meant by that. But of course, now you have <laughs> utterly described it. Um, what's his name? Jeremy Corbyn got a lot of stick um, over the last couple of years about anti-Semitism, people claiming that he was um, anti-Jewish. And it, it dominated the media on constant cycles for almost two and a half, if not more years. But the media did not are not putting the same amount of attention on attention onto the Conservative Party for its Islamophobia. Would you have any idea as to why the media will be picking and choosing and, its fights? And I think this is really, this is really interesting. I'm really bizarre. You know, 
clearly there is evidence to show that the Labour Party has problems with anti-Semitism and yes, this should be investigated and yes, this should be called out in the media. But, you know, we also, there's no evidence to show that Jeremy Corbyn himself has made anti-Semitic remarks, but we have an actual Prime Minister who has said some really horrible and vile things about Muslims, you know, the post boxes comment, the letter boxes comments, he said Islam is the problem. You know, he's made comments about Islam being incompatible with life. He hires people who promote eugenics um, and all the rest of it. You know, I, I don't have time or the energy or the patience to go through his um, his long list of uh, just vitriol, really. Um but, but then you also have the media that don't hold them to account for it. And I, th- I think back to the general election we had in 2019 and um, we were, you know, I was personally doing a lot of work with the MCB to highlight the Conservative Party's track record on Islamophobia to show this wasn't okay. And the media didn't care and no one questioned Boris Johnson on it until the chief rabbi said um, Jewish people should not vote for Labour because of Corbyn's... Um, Corbyn's stance on anti-Semitism or, or Corbyn's track record on anti-Semitism. And it was only then that, um, f- and I was told for balance, we had to talk about Islamophobia in the Conservative Party. Because you were legally obliged during an election. Because you're legally obliged to during an election. So it's not a problem at any other time. And But, you know, because we were talking so much about anti-Semitism in the Labour Party and it was during an election, we had to also reflect on the other side. And I'm not sure what more people expect when you have, you know, largely right-wing controlled media and press but when i when i put out this dossier earlier this year um about islamophobia in the conservative party and i remember speaking to a few journalists about it and i read them some of these things you know about the sterilization about being thrown from bridges and they said oh that's really awful i said well yeah they said, oh, but why i don't know why we don't talk about it but yeah i don't i don't know why you either, don't you know? talk about it yeah. <laughs> you guys are the journalists you're the yeah. ones who are meant to be holding them to account you know, we shout about this from the rooftops, but ultimately, because Islamophobia is just so acceptable, no one really cares very much. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a bit sad. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of hard to follow up that one, but um, yeah. <laughs> maybe we should follow up with some happier. Yeah. Yes. Do you want to tell us, like we talked about at the start about how you can sometimes feel hamstrung into talking about certain very kind of narrow um, blinkered things yeah just give you an open platform right now like what okay. are some of the wonderful colorful celebratory things that you wish you could talk about you know on the bbc or whatever when you're brought on when you're not just like you know throwing buckets of water on fires <laughs> no pressure okay um <laughs> and this is so this is so sad and so difficult because so much of my work is just kind of in defense mm. of muslims or you know trying to comment on terrorist attacks that I, I I genuinely don't really know what to say. And that's mm. really, really sad. Um I think like what I've what I've seen recently um in like in the wake of the pandemic and seeing Muslim communities respond to the pandemic has been really incredible. Um we've documented over a hundred um, community-led initiatives that have been set up by mosques or Muslim individuals in different communities to support their local communities. So like um, setting up food banks, um, delivering food parcels and medication. Um, I mentioned earlier that you have mosques that have set up temporary mortuaries to take the pressure off the NHS. Um, we have a mosque in Bolton that um, has set up end-of-life 
care facilities um, to house patients with coronavirus. Um, you have mosques that have been uh, sewing and donating PPE to their local hospitals um, because the government have failed to provide this adequately. Um, we've seen some mosques donate food to their hospitals, um, to their hospitals and stuff. And so there is lots of very nice things that Muslims do, um, obviously. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's, I, it's really difficult because we are so busy kind of defending our place in society and kind of, I guess, explaining why people shouldn't hate us. That I, I, I don't really know what to say that's positive. It's, if anything, I think it's, it's almost good in a way because it highlights the issue of how hamstrung you are by reactive um, yeah. politics and reactive like PR which which is such a shame because like the, the, even just like talking about the issues with lockdown coronavirus and the reactions there that's like the most wholesome wonderful stories I've heard in the last few weeks have been just over this call and I'm sure there's so Aww. much more yeah um, surely surely we're doing really nice stuff absolutely <laughs> what about what about your hopes for the future I think Britain is in a really interesting time with following the Black Lives Matter protest that we've seen this week. Um, and I think the at the start of the pandemic, it was really evident that it, it was it was kind of you know equalizing to an extent. We were all it felt like we were all in this together. Everyone was stuck in their homes, um, and a part of me felt really optimistic for the future of the UK, for the future of um, inclusion, and I almost said tolerance, and that is such an awful word. No one should tolerate anyone. We should just accept each other. But you know. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think Britain will is is there quite yet to accept people, but maybe we might be able to tolerate people who aren't white and middle class. But I think as we've got further into the pandemic and we've seen um, doctors die and nurses die, and most of them are um, from ethnic minorities, you have transport workers who are spat at in the face, um, who then die of coronavirus and the government initially or the the police initially did nothing about it. I don't feel super optimistic. I I really don't. I think, you know, we're talking about racism, which is really great, but we also have um, a government that is encouraging this. Um, We have a government that fundamentally does not understand racism. Uh, The Equalities Minister, Kemi Badenoch, the other day said in the Chamber of the House of Commons that uh, she didn't believe that that structural racism existed. And she said that the UK is the best place to be a, b- a black person. And I'm sure uh, many, many, many people, like all the people that the police have killed because of their skin colour, uh, would disagree with you. And all of the statistics that show, you know, how um, many people from ethnic minorities are in prison or um, are subject to police brutality or subject to stop and search measures and all the rest of it would disagree with you. And, you know, even the pandemic has shown that, um, people from ethnic minorities are dying at a disproportionate rate to other people, to to white communities, and all of the reasons point to the impacts of structural racism. And so it was really great um, last week when, or a few months ago, when um, Public Health England announced that they were going to do this review to find out why ethnic minorities are dying. Um, and then they published the review last week, and uh, the review had zero recommendations and did not mention the word racism. Um, and so it kind of feels like it feels like a roller coaster. Every time you think, "Oh my God, we might actually acknowledge 
that racism exists, that people um, suffer so much because of the consequences of structural racism that have, you know, are not their fault at all. And then we have a government that does something ridiculous, you know, like publish this review without any recommendations and without mentioning racism or, or the equalities minister talk about how racism doesn't exist. Or we have uh, the Conservative Party say that they're going to um, investigate there or hold an inquiry into prejudice and discrimination in the Conservative Party, but they appoint a person to chair the investigation who, again, doesn't believe that structural racism exists and thinks that Islamophobia is a myth. And so I don't feel super hopeful um, in the in the in terms of like big picture thinking, in terms of societal change, in terms of like a revolution, in terms of Muslims being normalised and called on TV to speak about anything other than terrorist attacks and Islamophobia and people like Michael O'Leary making silly comments. Um, But I think think, um, Muslim communities, because of the pandemic and in the wake of the pandemic, have been doing so much incredible, so much more incredible work in their local communities, supporting their local communities, because charity and you know acting in service to others is such a big part of islam um that people who on the ground who may not really know their local muslim communities are able to see their muslim communities or have seen their muslim communities have benefited from the work of their muslim communities and so i think on a local scale on a really small scale that that will have kind of positive benefits and um that that will maybe ease community tensions or increase community cohesion going forwards but on the whole yeah i don't i don't see how um life for british muslims can get better when you have a government that is so inherently islamophobic there's work to be done there's a lot of work to be done um but you know if you have and you know i i've i don't mean to keep laboring this point but if you have a prime minister that says these horrible things about muslims and he still becomes the leader of the country it gives free reign to everyone else who may have those views to um voice those views to amplify those those views and it gives everyone who who doesn't have those views it 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 kind of because of the mainstreaming of of those opinions it, it makes it more acceptable and it makes people actually think that this is the case and it's so it's it's just yeah it's just a bit shit really I can't I can't, I can't think if I just feel like I ranted at you guys about racism no, no, and Islamophobia no this, is, no this is all like essential listening I think yeah but I think and I think you you need to be able to rant yeah. as much as you want <laughs> but it's just I like and I'm fairly like middle class ish I I, 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 I'm quite privileged. I, I used to work in the House of Commons. I used to run a, um, a whip's office for a political party. I was the first ever Muslim woman to run a whip's office. And so I think that I am like really, yeah, privileged that I have it better off than lots of Muslims. But I, you know, and I think about like the time that I worked in the House of Commons. I was there for about three years. And the insane, like subtle racism and like microaggressions I was subject to as someone who was in a senior position in the House of Commons. And, you know, I I talk about this a lot because this is like, you know, the the House of Commons is, you know, meant to be this great 
place and the mother of all parliaments and representative of the whole country. Um, and I, I talk to people about what I faced there. And I think, you know, if that's what I was subject to there, being in the position that I was in, you know, what hopes has anyone else got anywhere else? Like, um, so it, in in my time in the House of Commons, I was once approached by a senior uh, white male MP uh, whilst in a canteen. Um, <clears throat> and that, you know, happened quite often. I was the head of a whip's office, so people knew me and whatever. Uh, he came up to me and he said, uh, excuse me. And he said, yes. He said, oh, there's a spillage over there in the corner. <sighs> and I thought, I'm not a cleaner. Oh, my God. Just because I'm not white doesn't mean oh I'm a cleaner. God. But in his defence, and I can't believe I'm saying this, um, the Houses of Parliament, which have thousands of people working for them, uh, almost all of the ethnic minorities there are cleaners, are chefs, are security guards. Yeah. Um, not a good enough. Like I said, not a good enough excuse. <laughs> well, no, not not good enough. But you know, that's that's the makeup of the House of Commons, yeah. uh, of the Houses of Parliament. Sorry, and you know, I you have to wear like a, a, a pass every day that has your your photo on it. So I would I would be walking around with my pass very visibly um, visible with my face on it, and uh, I'd be walking with like white colleagues. And um, no word of a lie, I would be stopped every single day uh, by a security guard who would say, oh, can I see your pass? Like, it, it's, it's, it's there. It's here, yeah. Um, and they would, they would take it, they would put it through their little scanners, they would look at it. I mean, there aren't very many people that look like me. I mean, whose pass am I going to take? You yeah. know, it's not, it's not a fake. Um, and I used to ask my white colleagues, does this ever happen to you? No, no. never. They could walk through probably with a Yu-Gi-Oh card or a Pokemon card well, in their in their thing exactly. lanyards and be fine. Exactly. And I have uh, there's one last anecdote which I always find quite amusing. Um, and then I will stop talking about the House of Commons. Um, <laughs> I there's you have these really like lovely restaurants in the House of Commons. There's there's one in the House of Lords. It's really really fancy. It's like in this uh, crypt, and uh, only people who have a pass can book. To, to go for dinner there so I'd booked to go for dinner there and I was taking a friend who didn't work in parliament um, and he's like a, a white male um, and so he had a, a pass around his neck that said visitor very clearly um, so we went into this restaurant and I said oh um, I said to the to the restaurant manager I said oh I have a reservation and he looked at me and he looked at my friend and he looked at me again he said oh you have a reservation I said yeah <laughs> And he looked at my friend again and he looked at me again and said, you, you have a reservation. And I, like this kind of went on for, you know, I think he asked me about three times. And just the fact, I mean, you could break this down to so many levels. The fact that he didn't think that someone who looked like me would be in a position to have a reservation mm. in a restaurant in the Houses of Parliament. The fact that he felt so empowered to ask me a number of times because he didn't believe that I had a reservation. Mm -hmm. The fact that he just assumed that the person who was it, who was a white male, would have a reservation over someone like me. It's is he just, looking around for hidden cameras thinking I, he's being punked or well, something? Like, exactly. Was he waiting exactly. for like the fourth time and you go, actually, no, you're right, I don't. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you got me. Uh, oh, I do this all the time. <laughs> uh, he was secretly rascal. Trevor Phillips for that documentary asking uh, what Muslims really think, see? I think go. you were really thinking you were hungry and you wanted to get in. <laughs> <laughs> quite, quite. But I just think, 
and, and that's me having had it better than most people. For me, from my very, very privileged background to be subject to that stuff, I think, you know, what, you know, what hopes does anyone else have, really? But hopefully all the good work, all the good work will add up. <laughs> I yeah. hope so. Yeah. Every, every little inclination. Zainab, do you have a podcast? I feel like you should have a podcast <laughs> if you don't already have one. <laughs> I mean, what more would I talk about apart from Islamophobia, terrorist attacks and British Muslimness? Oh, I mean, you've got so much to talk about. You could tell like just anecdotes like that, that, that restaurant one. You're very kind. Just highlight shit like that. That'd be great. You're very kind. I feel like you've, yeah, you've got so much to talk and about. Don't worry, after I mean, a while I you'll find crazy it. things. We've done all sorts of stupid episodes. So <laughs> yeah, if we can find 104, 104 things to talk about, then I think. And then we, we get to Islam. <laughs> yeah. What? what? What has come beforehand? <laughs> Oh, we're God. in trouble don't, don't, go, don't go look yeah <laughs> don't go look we've we have a list of very important things that like to be honest like if we're being perfectly candid there's there is like a bunch of big topics that we do want to talk about talk about but like you, you know we want to do them the justice time. and we feel sometimes sorry you can't just talk about all the big stuff all the time as well that would be really well, boring yeah it's a combination it, it, of yeah, that exactly. it's a combination of not wanting to always do the big topics and also being intimidated yeah. by the big topics and finding someone yeah. like yourself to come on and, and explain them explain yeah. them well to us which you have done perfectly well like, I hope this so this has been, been better this has been one of my favourites if oh, not my favourite you're very kind like I said it's really difficult to like there's just so much pressure to talk about British Muslimness like yeah. I, I don't, I don't really know and I wrote a report about British Muslimness <laughs> and I just feel like just 100 there is pages so of much question marks to mm. it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it's been, this yeah. has been really fun. Oh, it's been we didn't get to see the cat. So yeah, I feel hard done by. Oh, yeah, yeah she didn't come in. No, she didn't come in. I don't know where she is. She's probably still asleep. It is almost six o'clock on a Sunday. So have. why would she have gotten up by now? My girlfriend just walked <laughs> she in. She learned how so. to open the door. <laughs> not, a, not a cat. <laughs> no, not a cat. Unfortunately. <laughs> No, she can't oh, hear anything. But yeah, she she too has learned how to open the door and so very impressive. Wondering Did that happen pre lockdown or during lockdown? It's something she learned during lockdown. Let <laughs> <laughs> me get a smack. Hi, you you don't know what we're talking about here. <laughs> oh, I feel like you're insulting me. A little bit, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you so much, Say. Thank you, you so much. much. Thank you. That was just as good as you set it up to be. I know, right? Just um, second brand. Yeah, she really is. Just again, I think, yeah, I, I can pretty confidently say favorite, favorite interview. Um, sorry, I'm trying to make a, a poignant point about how good the interview was. And my girlfriend's just walking around, brushing her hair. She's going to leave. I'm trying to, you're ruining my journalistic integrity. I have zero journalistic integrity. I can't even spell it. Uh, yeah, but great. Just just all around wonderful stuff. Uh, is that it? What do we usually do at the end here? At one on politics at gmail.com. If you want to email in and tell us what big topics we have um, fucked up by not including in our 105 episodes, you can let us know there. Yeah. We were we were riffing about not taking suggestions, but we love suggestions for episodes. We absolutely love suggestions and we kind of need them. <laughs> um, not only do we love them, we need them. Um, so let us know there. Also at what on politics on Instagram and on Twitter. You want to get in contact? Yep. We don't want you to buy us a beer this time. If you want don't. to give money to someone, then give it to one of the fine organizations we have linked in the notes. Yeah, do that. That'd be lovely. And yeah, stay safe out there. Or what? What are you going to do to them? I'll I'll, I'll get out my lightsaber. Ooh. So there's a throwback for you. Look at you linking into things that happened already. <laughs> oh. See ya. See ya.
This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network.